Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a kind of a mock to flyby of some of the promises of God and show through them that God is in fact faithful to his promises. And I think one of the greatest ways without question that we can do that is to look at the greatest set of promises that God made. That if we're asking the question, is God a God that keeps his promises, we can look at the greatest set of promises and say, did God keep them? And if we can see from Scripture and history that he did, then we can say, yeah, God's a God that is faithful to his promises. So what is the greatest set of promises that we have? Well, they are without question the promises that God made regarding the Messiah, the Savior that he was going to send. Promises that are prophecies, are statements throughout the Old Testament that this Savior, this Messiah is going to come that the world is in such desperate need for. So we're going to fly over those this morning. Obviously, I cannot take you through all the promises of God this morning related to the Messiah, and we can't do that throughout the month of December. That would be a lifetime a study that we could give to, but we're going to take the next 35 minutes or so and we're going we're gonna to fly over those promises and we're going to see two predominant uh, landmarks on the horizon, on the topography of the promises of God, if you will, regarding the Messiah. One of those is going to be about the specific promises of God, the detailed promises of God, and another one is going to be about the symbolic promises of God that he made related to the Savior, the Messiah that was to come. And we're going to see if he fulfilled those. It says in 2 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20. I mean, what is at the centerpiece of the greatest promises of God? Listen, as surely as God is faithful, there's a theme right there, God is faithful to his promises. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you, Paul wrote, has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all of the promises of God find their yes in him. So what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be looking at the promises related to the Messiah and seeing if those are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. First of all, the specific promises. When we are asking the question or trying to determine if in fact a prophecy, i.e. promise of what is to come is fulfilled, we need to kind of put that into a kind of a grid, a couple of things need to be true to see if it truly is, number one, a prophecy and if it was fulfilled. So let me just give you a couple of the guidelines that we should look for in seeing if God is in fact fulfilling a prophecy or a promise. Number one, it is this. 
there must be sufficient details given that would make it something that is beyond just the guesswork of man. Right? Specific promises and enough of those in intricate enough detail that somebody couldn't just guess with human wisdom and say, here's what's going to happen. Secondly, that there needs to be enough time between the promise given and its fulfillment that the one stating the prophecy, that it's impossible for them to have any impact on the fulfillment of that prophecy. So let's just use those two simple rules to look at some of the detailed promises that God made about the Messiah and see if they fit those two descriptions and if Jesus Christ is in fact the fulfillment of them. Now there are, we're not going to look at all of them, there are so many. I'm just going to quickly, in rapid fire succession, I'm just going to read you within four different categories some of the promises that were made about the Messiah that was to come. And here's the question I want you to consider as we're doing this related to the rule number one there. Are these generic, kind of ambiguous, kind of like the, you know, the little strip of paper you pull out of the fortune cookie, right? You read that. Are those very specific or pretty generic? Most of mine are like, well, you're going to have a prosperous year. That's never happened, right? (laughs) So we're going to look and see if the promises that God made related to the Messiah are specific and detailed. Let me just give you about 40 of them. Yeah, I'm going to go through 40. So drink fast, here comes the fire hose. Portraits of his birth. The Old Testament said, and listen, if you want the scriptures related to the Old Testament prophecy and the New Testament fulfillment, you email the church office this week and I'll shoot them to you on an email. So we're not going to take the time to look them up. I'm just going to rapid fire give them to you. Promises or portraits of the birth of the Messiah. The Messiah would be a child. He would be male. His mother would conceive as a virgin. That was pretty specific right there. The time and history of his birth, the location of his birth, down to the very town in which he would be born. Pictures or promises of his life where he would go right after birth. And what he would do then following that in a second location. And then that the Messiah would be preceded by a messenger. And even exactly what the messenger that prepared the way for him would say. What the character of the Messiah would be like. What kind of a person would he be? That the very specific region in which he would minister in the initial part of his ministry and then where he would minister in the later part of his ministry. That he would be a prophet, that he would be a preacher, that he would be a great teacher, that he would perform miracles, that he would be born to a very poor peasant family. Portraits of his death. That he would be betrayed by a friend. That for the betrayal that friend that betrayed him would get 30 pieces of silver. Not 31, not 29, he'd get 30 pieces of silver. Even what would be done with 
the 30 pieces of silver after it was given. That he would be forsaken by his disciples. That he would be accused by false teachers. That he would be mocked and he would be beaten. That he would have his hands and his feet pierced. That he would be crucified between two thieves. That while being tortured, he would pray for those that were persecuting him. That he would be stripped naked in humiliation. That those crucifying him would gamble for his garments. That he would be deserted by God. That he would agonize with thirst. That his friends, while he was dying, would stand afar off. That none of his bones would be broken in death. That he would be hidden by darkness in his death. That he would be buried with the rich in his death. That he would die a voluntary death. Finally, some prophecies about his resurrection. Pretty specific. How long would he be in the grave? That he would come out of the graves, rising from the dead, that he would remain 40 days on earth following his resurrection, and that he would ascend back up into heaven. So here's a question. General or specific? General or specific? Very specific. Ridiculously specific. That's 40 of another 300 plus more prophecies as well. Everyone in exact precision fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth born to Mary and Joseph. Why? Because God is the God who keeps his promises. And the greatest of them centered in, resting upon, unlocked by the very purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. How about rule number two? That in order for it to be a prophecy and to be able to determine its true fulfillment, that there needs to be enough span of time between the prophecy given and its fulfillment so that the one making the prophecy cannot influence or affect the outcome. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the garden, at the fall, first prophecy was made. Seed of a woman's going to come. And then over and over and over and over again, down through history, over about 1,500 years of time, all the way through the Old Testament, prophets making statement after statement, all of the specific details that we just, I just gave you and many more. And then the book was shut. The prophecies went silent. And for a long period of time, not one prophecy uttered. It's as if God just stopped talking. And several hundred years after that silence, an angel appears to a teenage girl. And he says... Mary, you're going to have a child. And he's going to be the child. He's going to be the seed of Genesis 3.15. 
that I promised at the fall. And he's going to fulfill every one of the other prophecies that I have been enumerating down through the centuries. So, yes, in fact, there was plenty of time between the prophecies given and their fulfillment so that none that had given them, humanly speaking, could affect their outcome. Why? Because God made them and He's the God that keeps His promises because every one of those close to 400 prophecies, i.e. promises that God made, about the person of the Messiah were all fulfilled in exact detail in the life, in the death, in the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is a God who keeps his promises. There's the specific promises. Now let's go to the second mountain on the topography of these promises of God related to the Messiah Symbolic promises. Let me just give you two. I wish I had time to unpack these more than I do, but let me just give you two specifically. The first one, and by the way, those that were, that God used to paint these shadows, these forms, these pictures of Christ long before he was to come, had no idea that the events that they were involved in and the things that they were doing were actually bigger than their life and what was going on with them. They had no idea at that moment what they were doing was actually an incredible portrait of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that was to come until God had revealed that to them. First of all, I'm going to talk to you about Abraham and the sacrifice of his only son, Isaac. God takes the man by the name of Abraham, and he dips him in the paint of biblical history with his life, and he begins to paint a masterpiece of a picture of the Messiah, this promised seed from Genesis 3.15 and all through the Old Testament that was to come. And here's the story. God comes to Abraham in his 70s, and he says to him, Abraham, I want you to do some things. I want you to leave your country and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And here's what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Kings are going to come from you. In fact, there's going to come one from you that's going to bless the entire human race. Abraham had no children. And so Abraham, believing in the promise of God began to follow in obedience to the Lord and nothing happened and nothing happened and year went by and year went by and decade went by and decade went by and Abraham gets up to 99 years old and his wife Sarah is 89 years old and they are well past the human biological ability to produce offspring. They were effectively dead. Where was the promise? Well, God was waiting for them to effectively be dead related to procreation because what God was going to do is He was going to fulfill the promise of the child by the miraculous work of His Spirit. And so, 
when Abraham is a hundred and Sarah is ninety, God performs a miracle and a child is born, the child Isaac. And Abraham loves this child. Oh, he loves this child. And then comes Genesis chapter 22. The child is probably an adolescent or a teenager. Apple of his father's eye. And here's what we read with tear-stained eyes in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What would Abraham do? And this was his son. Not just his son. This was the son of the promise that God had given to him. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you what Abraham did. We're not going to throw it up on the screen. It's a larger section of Scripture that will fit there. But I just want you to listen as I read verses 3 to 12. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day after Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold. The fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together, and when they came to the place, of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, for from me. Did you see the picture 
of the Messiah there. The intricate picture of the Christ that was to come that is far beyond and greater than the story that is taking place with Abraham here. Though it is an incredible story what is taking place. But there is a much bigger picture being painted. You see, Abraham had this son Isaac that was his beloved son is that he held so dear to his heart and for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And who was this son? It was the son of the promise. It was the son of the promise. It was the son that God waited and waited and waited to fulfill Year after year, decade after decade, well beyond the time when Abraham and his wife could have children. Why? So that it had to be the son of the promise. It had to be the son that was miraculous in his birth. Why did it have to be the the son that was miraculous in his birth? Well, God was painting a picture. He was painting a picture that The great promise was going to come through a son that was going to be miraculous in his birth. That it was going to defy the normal process of procreation. And the way it was going to happen was there was going to be a Holy Spirit inspired child that would be born. Born to a virgin. An impossible birth. Just like the impossible birth of Abraham's son. And think about the expectancy. Oh, how long Abraham waited, having received the promise for the fulfillment in his life. It seemed like a lifetime. Think about the promise of God for the Savior. Genesis 3.15 and on down through the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of times God kept saying in one way or another, the promise is coming, the promise is coming, the promise is coming. And the great standout characteristic of Israel in the Old Testament was they were an expectant people waiting for the promise. Waiting for the promise. What a picture God painted there through Abraham and Sarah. Then God said, I want you to go to the land of Moriah. To one of the hills I will show you. I mean, he's very specific. Not any hill in the land of Moriah. I want you to go to the land of Moriah and there's a hill. I'm going to tell you about that hill. When you get there, I'm going to show it to you. That's the hill I want you to take your son up on and I want you to crucify him on that hill. And it says later that when they got there to the hill that God had showed them. You know what scholars tell us? You know what hill Jesus was crucified on? corresponds to the same hill in the same land that Golgotha is the hill in Moriah where Abraham was to sacrifice his son that years later the father would sacrifice his son unto death. Same hill. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son. 
And the sun trudged up the hill with the wood upon which he would lay as the sacrifice, just like Jesus Christ shouldered the cross of Calvary and drug it outside of the city and ascended the hill of Golgotha, carrying the wood upon which he would be laid. And in response to the question of Isaac to his father Abraham, Father, where's the lamb? Abraham said, without knowing that he was making one of the greatest prophetic statements in the Old Testament, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering of my son. John the Baptist, standing beside the Jordan, baptizing people for repentance of sins, looked up and he saw Jesus coming as he began his ministry. And he shouted out, pointing at Jesus, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Abraham bound his own son Isaac and he laid him on the offering of sacrifice. God had told him to do that. Why would God tell him to do that? What's the purpose of that? He's painting a picture of another father later in history, the father of heaven, who's going to take his own son and he's going to lay him on the cross and crucify him there, pierce his flesh and hang him up to die. Yes, you heard that right. I said the father of heaven was going to take the son of heaven and lay him on the cross, the holy son, and crucify him there. Because it says in Isaiah chapter 53 that Jesus had all of the iniquities of us all laid on him by the Lord. It says in Isaiah 53 verse 10, yet listen to this, just try to get your head around this. I got two sons of my own. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, his father, has put him to grief. Isaiah looked into the future, 700 and some years into the future by the power of the Spirit of God and saw that the God of heaven was going to crucify his own son. It was going to be his will and he was going to crush him and put him to grief. That's why God said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to take him to this specific hill, and there on the specific hill, I want you to slay him there. In the story of Abraham, he said to his son, the Lord will provide 
the sacrifice. Listen to Genesis 22.13. After God had stayed Abraham's hand from slaying his son, it says, And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God provided this substitutionary animal caught by its horns in the thicket. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, Jesus was God's substitutionary sacrifice. The Lord laid upon him all of our sins, and he suffered for us so that we wouldn't have to, just like the ram suffered for Isaac so that he wouldn't have to. And that ram had its head caught in a thicket, and as they were punishing Jesus in mockery, the soldiers took thorns and made them into a crown and shoved them into his brow so that his brow, his head was shrouded and circled in a crown of thorns. Because God is faithful to his promises. And Abraham said, the Lord will provide the ram, the lamb, and that is exactly what the Lord did. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. The Lord provided the Lamb. So what God did through Abraham in symbolic type is that he painted this incredible detailed picture of the Savior, the great promise that was to come. And Abraham didn't see and understand all of that, but we on this side of the cross, through the illumination of the Spirit of God and the written Word, we can look back and say, oh my goodness, look at what God was saying. He was showing us who the Savior was so that we would not miss Him. So that we can look back now and say, wow, God is faithful to His promises. And His greatest promise was the Son of Sacrifice that He perfectly portrayed and then precisely fulfilled. And then finally, the last picture The last symbol is Moses' tabernacle in the wilderness. Oh, I wish I had the time to unpack the fullness of this picture, at least to the best of my knowledge. I know it's deeper than I understand, but I understand a lot about it, and it is shocking. It is absolutely shocking of the picture God painted of Jesus through What? The tabernacle in the wilderness? Yes. Incredible picture. You see, Moses had led the people out of Egypt by the power of God and they went to God's holy mountain and Moses went up on the mountain and he got the Ten Commandments from God and then God gave him the ordinances and the rituals that they were to follow and he gave them him a design for a tabernacle a place that was to be a tent of meeting where God would dwell with His people. And He gave him this intricate kind of set of blueprints, if you will, detailed descriptions. And then He said to Moses in Exodus 25, 8 through 9, 
and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, so you shall make it. In other words, Moses, there's going to be a tabernacle in which I'm going to dwell with you among the people, and I want you to make it precisely the way I tell you to make it in every detail. And in addition to that tabernacle, there were to be rituals and ordinances. One of the greatest or the greatest of the rituals that they were to remember was the Day of Atonement. One day a year. And the Day of Atonement was the highest and the holiest day of year. It was a religious ceremony that God outlined for Moses. And God said, here it is. It's the only way. It's the only way that a sinful people can fellowship with a holy God, me. It's the only way that I can dwell among a sinful people so that my wrath does not break out against them because of their sin. Related to the Day of Atonement. Let me just tell you a few things about that day. One of the aspects of that day was a sacrificial goat. And that sacrificial goat was the offering for the Lord. It was called the offering for the Lord. And what the priest was to do, the high priest, they were to select a goat that they believed to be without spot or blemish. And they were to watch and examine that goat for five days prior to this celebration, this high and holy day, the Day of Atonement, to make sure that there was no defect, no blemish in this goat. And then on the Day of Atonement, that high priest was to sacrifice that goat and catch the blood of that goat and take it through the outer courtyard of the tabernacle and into the holy place of the tabernacle and then beyond the holy place into the very inner sanctum, this special room called the Holy of Holies where the actual visible manifest presence of God dwelt. And he was to take that blood of that sacrificed spotless goat into that Holy of Holies, on one day a year, only the high priest could do that. Now, to understand the significance, you need to know what was inside the Holy of Holies. There was what is called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant in there was this chest made of a K.I. wood that was overlaid in gold, made exactly like the pattern Moses had been given by God. And... In that chest was the copies of the Ten Commandments that God had given to Moses. I want to read you Exodus 25, 20 to 22. God defined for him exactly how to make the ark and the lid that covered it. Very specifically, he was to make some angels of gold that's set on either side like bookends on the lid facing each other. And he called the lid by a specific name. Listen, 
The cherubim, the highest and holiest angels, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be and you shall put on the mercy seat and on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you and there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony I will speak with you above all that and I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So here's the picture. There's this chest and on the chest there's this lid called the mercy seat or the seat of propitiation and on the lid there are two angels golden angels facing each other on the outsides with their wings spread out overshadowing the lid touching in the center and there below this overshadowing two angels was this hovering light the Shekinah presence of God that dwelt above this lid called the mercy seat and under that lid in the ark were copies of the tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments of God. And on this high and holy day, the high priest would take the blood of the spotless animal that had been shed and carried in to the Holy of Holies and go behind the veil on one day a year and only the high priest and he would take that blood and he would pour it on top of the lid, the mercy seat. And the holy manifest presence of God that hovered there above the mercy seat, above the tablets that were in the Ark of the Covenant, the law of God that had been broken every one of them that had been broken by a sinful people. And what would stay the wrath of God for another year of breaking out against a sinful people so that their sin was punished with the punishment that sin demanded, death. What would keep the wrath of God from breaking out? It would be the blood of the sacrificial animal the spotless one sacrificed on the day of atonement and poured there between the holy God and the Ten Commandments that had been broken so that between the holy God and sin was the blood of the spotless sacrifice. And for one more year, God would forestay. He would hold back His wrath from breaking out. But it had to be repeated year after year. You see, the picture of Jesus. Jesus is the Shekinah presence. Jesus is the manifest presence of God that entered into this world. Scripture says that all of the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. Jesus said to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're the same. We're one. Jesus was the spotless lamb. Listen, listen. Jesus entered in Jerusalem five days before he was crucified. Five days. You know what they did for five days? 
They tried to trap him. They tried to find fault in him. They looked and they looked, but they couldn't find anything to blame him for. He was a spotless lamb. He was without blemish. Because he was God's lamb. And then on the high holy day, on the exact day, on the specific day that the priest was sacrificing the sacrificial animal, Jesus outside of Jerusalem on a hill was being sacrificed on that day as God's lamb. And do you know that the tabernacle in the wilderness was just a shadow? It wasn't the true tabernacle. It was made after a pattern. It was made after a model. You see, what God gave to Moses on the mountain was a picture of the true tabernacle, the true dwelling place of God in heaven. Listen to Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one that Moses made according to the pattern, a greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, that is, in heaven, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not one that has to be made year after year, It's a sacrifice made once for all. Jesus took his own blood to the true tabernacle in heaven and he poured it there upon the mercy seat of propitiation so that before a holy God and a sinful man is the spotless blood that doesn't just defer the wrath of God for another year but can take away sins forever and give righteousness. That's what Jesus is. You see, God even showed us a picture of that. Mary. Jesus is crucified on Friday and Mary is broken. She so loved her Lord. And she goes to the tomb and she's there outside of the tomb and she's weeping. And she stoops over and she looks in to the tomb that is opened, that has been sealed. And listen to what she saw, John 20, 12. And she saw two angels in white. Are you tracking with me here? Two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. You see the picture of the seat of propitiation there, the slab upon which Jesus lay just like the Ark of the Covenant and the lid that was the seat of mercy, an angel as a bookend on either edge facing each other, overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant. There on the stone-cold slab of the grave was one angel sitting at the head where Jesus had laid and another sitting at the feet as a picture of the sacrifice that truly makes the difference and cleanses sin forevermore. The true atonement of God. 
Why did all that happen? Because God promised a Savior and he's faithful to his promises. And so he painted the picture so that we could look back and know for certain it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him and in him alone. So what effect should this truth have on us? Well, I'll tell you one thing that it should do. It should bring us to the mercy seat. If you're here this morning and you are not saved, you've never put your faith in Jesus, I'm begging God that he would show you and reveal to you Jesus is the son of the living God, the sacrificed lamb that the Lord provided for your sin so that you can come to the mercy seat. You can actually come to the very holy God and not be wiped out by his wrath, but be forgiven by his grace because Jesus has done it all. He's paid for your sin. And if you put your faith and trust in him, he will forgive you. And never again, never again will God look down at you and see sin. I'm talking about past, present, and future. He'll look down at you and see the righteousness of Jesus. You'll have an e- eternal place on the mercy seat, secure there because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So that's for you that are not believers. Here's what I believe this should say to us for those who are believers. See, when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two in that holy of holy place that separated that Shekinah presence of God, the manifest presence of God where he dwelt in his holiness that was ripped open from top to bottom an unterrible curtain that God reached down at the moment of the death of Jesus. He ripped that in two and he's saying by that, hey, the way in is open. The way in is open. You don't have to, listen, you don't have to come to the temple anymore and kind of look around the corner and say, oh yeah, I see the veil is torn. I see the way is open. Wow, it's still open, praise God. No, he wants you to come in. What Jesus made possible is for you and me to come in to the very holy presence of God, to actually live in the holy presence of God That's what it means to be in Christ. We can live in the holy presence of God, not just in the future in heaven. We can live in it right now. We can experience it right now. That's why Jesus died, so that that would be possible for us. You see, God is a God that's faithful to His promises. Oh, He has so proven that through the Scriptures through the promises of the Messiah. What we're going to do here is we're going to end with communion. What a great way to end the subject matter here. Because what communion is, it's a picture of the sacrificed body and spilled blood of Jesus, the lamb that the Lord provided for sin. So what this is about is us remembering what Jesus has done as the very Son of God to make the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And so it's called the Lord's Supper. And it's for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. 
or it's for anyone who right now this morning is saying, I am believing, I've heard the truth, and I'm believing in who Jesus is and that he died for me, and I am accepting him as my Savior. I believe he paid for my sin and rose again from the dead. Then this meal, this Lord's Supper, is for you. And you can remember for the first time, if that's you this morning, what Jesus has done for you. So we're going to pray and then the ushers are going to pass the elements and you can take them as we sing a song or two and just reflect upon what Christ has done for you. Thanking him for his sacrifice, thanking the Father for providing the Lamb. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace that just is beyond comprehension. Forgiving your Son. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to die a substitutionary death for me for us. Thank you. We remember what you've done. Lord, help us to continue to pursue, to live in the actual presence of God that your death and resurrection made possible. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.